Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Marco Bertini here with me. Uh, welcome to my podcast, Marco. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm actually so happy to meet you here, actually, which is my home city in, in uh, Stockholm, even if I have a base also in Milan and you're Italian, so we Indeed. can actually speak several languages here together if we like. But as a very short intro, Marco Bertini is Associate Professor and uh, Chair of the Marketing Subject Area at ESADE Business School in Barcelona. He is also co-founder of ESADE's Institute for Data-Driven Decisions. He completed his doctoral studies at Harvard Business School and was previously on the faculty of the London Business School. And recently, Marco was named to the Thinkers 50 radar, a shortlist of the scholars most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led. And prior to this, he was nominated for the Business Professor of the Year Award and also recognized by the Marketing Science Institute as one of the most promising scholars in the field. So Marco is also a native of Italy, and he has also lived in Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, and now in Spain. Yes, in Barcelona. Barcelona. You're lucky to be there. Yes, very, I feel very lucky. <laughs> Are you going to stay there for a couple of years? Or you... But you never know. When you start traveling, you, know, you, uh, you start moving, and the concept of home is a relative concept, right? Um, yeah. We're happy there. My family's there. Everybody's happy. I have no reason to move. Okay. But, you know, who knows? And where is home in Italy? If... Cuneo. Cuneo is in the southwest Southwest of Torino, by the Alps. Yeah. Cuneo is where I was born. Torino is where I grew. I grew up okay. in Italy. Yes, mm. Juventus fan. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I bet. And I know that very soon, in like an hour or so, you will um, uh, have a VIP session here at the Nordic Business Forum uh, with uh, CEOs and many leaders of companies, uh, where you'll speak about the shift from like selling products uh, to selling value Indeed, and, uh, yeah. and, and also about actually how to design the revenue strategy in this new tech date, right? Indeed, yeah. Is there like any way that you in a very, very couple of minutes could kind of give the main takeaways yeah, of, of that? Yeah, of course. It's hard for an academic to speak in a yeah. few minutes, but I'll, I'll try my best. This is a story about technology at the end of the day, right? Technology is always changing and it's changed in one fundamental way in the last few years and that is you know, if you look at customers, before we were pretty good at understanding what they need and want, we became pretty good at understanding how they buy things. And now we can finally also understand how they consume, when they consume, mm. what they consume, if they consume, and how much value they derive. So now you've got the opportunity to stretch your knowledge of our customers all the way to the actual creation of value, and sometimes even the knowledge of value itself, right? Through sensors, cloud computing. And so... This gives an opportunity for just about every market you can think about to change the way companies make money. Companies typically make money by selling stuff, selling a product, selling a service. And then the risk is on the customer. If you cannot afford it, that's your risk. Uh, if you don't consume it, that's your risk. If it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, that's your risk. But now that I have these insights, I can actually measure this risk and it creates opportunities for startups, for sometimes incumbents, for governments to say, hold on a second, I'm not going to pay for pills if I'm in the healthcare sector. I'm going to pay for health. I'm not going to pay for textbooks. I'm going to pay for education. So 
this talk that I'm giving today is really about this opportunity. I try to show a path forward and I try and help companies wake up and say, hey, if you're not going to move, like some of the examples that I showed them, somebody else will move for you. And there is a, a um, Professor Roberto Verganti at the Polytechnic of Milano that I uh, met uh, some time ago. And he has this, um, let's say, call it a new uh, approach in some years. It's really about using meaning as a value driver. Right. Offering customers something more. Uh, so if something is meaningful for both the people who are creating the product or the service right. and then the people who consume it, definitely business value will follow. Sure. But it's not like asking the consumer or customer about what do you want and then we'll fix it for you. It's rather coming with a unique interpretation of what something is that somebody needs. Right. And then uh, sure. these people meet. Right. Uh, so really, uh, and I believe that's more and more so in today's world where we eventually are choosing the consumption is really a pattern from, yeah. from what we are looking for as, as on a deeper level as well. So what you say, I mean, with the example you just gave me, so that it puts into a highlight or into perspective the two sides of a business. So the gentleman you just mentioned, he, he talks about the creation of value perspective, right? You got to add meaning. We got to be very insightful about this and we got to create value. So the, where I step in is then say, that's great. We have this value, but why are you not charging for that value? Why don't you make money, you earn your profit off that value? Why are you making it off the means to achieve that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's inefficient. And so markets are becoming much, much better at this. And it's changing, I would say, just about every sector you can think about. Just about every sector you can think about at very different speeds, though. But are generally companies bad at price strategies? Terrible. In my empirical observation, uh, they're terrible. I have this sort of uh, image of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? If you think about that's the classic story, right? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there's Dr. Jekyll. And Dr. Jekyll is the creation of value guy. And companies have known now for 60 years, ever since Marketing Myopia back in 1960, right? The article, the famous article by Theodore Levitt. They've always had this, we've been told that customer orientation is key for 60 years. When you create value, you don't make stuff and push it to the marketplace. You think of the customers, think what they want in whichever way, however creative you can be, and then sort of reverse engineer your solution to those needs, right? That's Dr. Jekyll, right? But then when it comes to the back end of that process, when it comes to actually converting that into revenue, we become Mr. Hyde. It's like, forget the customer. No, no, now my finances are at stake here. So I'm going to go more inward as opposed to outward. I'm going to care about me, my bottom line, my costs, yeah. and I'm going to price based on that sort of safety hurdle. Okay. And most companies, as you know, are what are called cost plus pricers. They price based on their cost up. Now I was telling you that's pretty terrible. It is terrible because if you think about this, as a company, whether you're profit or non-profit doesn't really matter. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get your fair share of revenue from the value you've created. Also because this fair share helps you uh, fund new innovations in the future, right? So you need that to, be, to continue to provide solutions to customers. So if I'm going to price based on my cost, I'm pricing from the bottom up when all that actually matters is the top, the potential, and then maybe work your way down, okay? Mm -hmm. I guarantee all my clients that if you start from the top and figure out the top and work your way down or may or get the customers to push you down if they can, you're going to have a much healthier top line uh, than you would if you're trying to start from the bottom and try to fight against customers to go up. Okay, In my opinion, it's a question of uh, safety. I cannot go below this line. So let me just start from there. Safety, uh, simplicity 
it's all internal information. It's much simpler, right? Mm-hmm. And also sort of, a, I think, a, a bit of a lack of, uh, a lack of knowledge, right? A l- lack of dare, in a sense. So even though it sounds paradoxical, one of the big messages that I try and provide to companies when I, in my research and also in my work with them is that customer orientation is a 360 process, right? It doesn't stop when you created value, it keeps going. You have to focus on the customer also when you're capturing that value. Because at the end of the day, the focus point is always the customer. You're creating things for customers and you're generating revenue from customers. The internal aspects are important, of course, we should not neglect them, but they're purely a warning sign. They're never a benchmark. You always start from customers and work your way down and make sure that you cover whatever cost you have along the way. But going back to you, uh, Marco, is there anything that you would say, like, this is my passion, really, that I've uh, had with me for a very long time? You know, something that is so important yeah. to you that you're even willing to suffer for it if it's needed? Well, I don't know about the suffering, but, but I, I mean, I do suffer. I was just thinking, I do suffer a lot in the classroom. So this is, I mean, if, if you know me, I think you, you will see pretty quickly, I suppose, that I'm very passionate about this topic, right? I don't know why that's become. I mean, when I was doing my, my PhD studies, In my second year, my advisor at the time handed to me an article about fees, of all things, about how, you know, companies to make money are using fees and they're fooling customers and all. This is about airlines, it was actually. And that article really caught my eye. And I remember like it was if it was yesterday, caught my eye. And my own research is kind of at the interface between economics and psychology. So I guess... These days, it's called behavioral economics. It wasn't called behavioral economics. It was called decision science back when I was doing it. It was a much more boring term. And so I've been always fascinated about prices, but from a psychological sense. Because if you think about it, as an economist, prices, there was, an economist would typically say, all you need to know is the price. Once you know your price, you know everything, right? It's, it carries all the information. And it's a pretty rational thing. It's a number, it's objective, it's short, concise, all those things. But boy, does it carry so much meaning. Right, And so I've always been interested about how something so economical, something so rational, objective, can actually be used. And again, this is a bit of a paradox for organizations as a branding tool. So um, from there, uh, that passion sort of evolved. And I'm really interested in helping companies understand. And I guess I'm particularly interested about this because when you talk about pricing, a lot of times people think, one, tactical, and two, dirty in a sense right it's about capitalism yeah, right and it's totally not like that and my message is all about that so it's definitely not tactical because the moment i can put meaning into something right it helps me sustain demand over time it helps me grow demand over time i can build a brand if i want around a price we could think about that right i can understand how it can be dirty as we were saying before but it's not the point of it if you think about it an organization has to generate revenue there's nothing dirty about that. If you want to survive, you need to generate revenue. Now, how much revenue generates, then it could be, uh, could be viewed in a certain way. I'm really passionate. Maybe it's a weird thing, but I'm really passionate about trying to get companies to understand that, look, you spend so much money creating value and you do a good job. You really spend R&D. You spend a lot of money. You want to separate yourself. You want to do good in society. You want to help customers improve their lives. Most companies have that sort of idea, which is great. But then when it comes to actually turning that into revenue, some of that for themselves, it's like it's heuristics. So much strategy just becomes heuristical all of a sudden. And so I try to step in and say, come on, if you want to keep doing what you've been doing until now, creating all this great value, you've got to do a better job this way. So I'm passionate about that. <laughs> and there is a concrete way of in how you guide them through this process? Yeah, of sure. Of finding so, this 
I've kind of developed this over time, again, from my kind of a mixture of my own research and work with companies, the events I speak at. Mm. I break it down into four different steps. Okay, so uh, typically I would say, well, if I say pricing uh, in terms of actions, what do you have in mind? And everybody puts up their hand and says, the number, right? How much should this be? And of course, I always get the questions. Hey, Marco, I sell this and I sell it at 10. Is that high or low? I don't necessarily know, but that's a typical question. The starting point of most companies, and often, unfortunately, the only point is the price setting process. Okay, so I, typically, I, when I when I work with a company, try to overhaul the revenue strategy. I would say, okay, let's leave that question is very important. The how much question is very important, but before we do that, we gotta ask ourselves the what question. What did your customers actually paying for? So this is a business model decision, right? Are we charging for the means? For ownership, are we charging for access? Are we charging for consumption? And this is a very important strategic decision, right? Because it kind of affects a lot of things in your organization. So the very first step is, what is the metric that we're using? What are my customers paying for? Once I've decided the metric by which revenue is created, then I can decide how much that comes next. It's it's a kind of an empty question unless I know what am I charging for, right? So what is step number one? Uh, how much will be step number two? And here we delve deeper and think about the different ingredients that go into a price setting process. You know, what are the different inputs you need and how do you combine them? Then once we have that number, then we would say step three is we realize that we live in a world, in a marketplace where all of our customers have different valuations for the same thing that we sell. So I have to have some sort of rules in place for varying my prices. Okay, what an economist would call price discrimination, but that sounds like mm. a bad term, right? But essentially, it's tailoring our prices to the different valuations that you find in the marketplace, which is a fair thing to do because, again, some people would value it much more, so perhaps you can afford a higher price. Some people have value much less, and so I need to maybe tailor my price down. And so we talk about these different rules for varying prices, how to do it in a way that is efficient for the organization and also is acceptable in the marketplace because consumers reasonably can get upset. They don't need to. Uh, the question is, if you do it in a certain way, it's acceptable by both parties in a marketplace. And then that would be step number three, varying prices. And then the very last thing is, I would say, okay, now that we've done all that stuff, let's open the doors of the organization, okay? And let's go and actually sell our prices because we're, we live in a marketplace where customers will say, no, that's too high. You know, imagine a B2B setting. And so um, the last step in this framework is basically arguments to defend prices. And there's a whole process for selling value to professional buyers, for example, and also of maintaining value against competition, buyers and competitors at the time. So this is a four-step framework that basically takes the how much question that a business would always ask itself and sort of blows it up with some things before it and some things after it. Uh, one person who's here at the event and who's going to talk later is also Simon Sinek, you know, yeah. start with a Y and all that. And really, when you think about that perspective, it's very much about how you create an emotional bond with a customer, whether it's B2B in a way sure. or B2C, right? Uh, so when you have created that kind of emotional connection to them, then you are able to also drive more their behavior, right, towards certain actions, even to accept a certain, let's say, price level as well. Sure. Because they have some kind of emotional investment in, in it as well. 
so I'm just thinking these steps also combined with this kind of uh, psychology, emotional perspective, I think is very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. If I can just expand on that a second. So when we think about a revenue strategy for a business, there are those four actions that I was just mentioning. But a fuller way of thinking about it is in terms of a matrix. You go to actions and consequences. When you think about the consequences, and to, to piggyback on what you're just saying right now, prices drive behavior in three ways. The first way is as an incentive. By setting the bar higher or lower or in a certain way, it motivates people to act in a certain way. If I have an unlimited buffet at breakfast, for example, that most likely drives people to eat more, right? So that, that kind of idea. But it also it provides information. So it, it, it acts as a, as a signal, a source of information. And as I was saying, mentioning before, knowing that it provides a, it's a source of information, I can devise the way I present my prices to try and communicate something to you. The classic example is, classic example, the higher the price, the better you think the product is. That's a, it's a classic. Uh, everybody falls into that, into that sort of idea. The last one, which goes back to what Simon, you mentioned about Simon, there is this, um, an emotional route. So there is an economic route, an informational route, and, a, and, a, and an emotional, an affective route. And the affective route is really about that, about creating bonds with customers. And uh, you can, again, devise your, the way you price in such a way to make it more relational, I would say. And that sort of relational structure tends to foster a certain bond with customers. That bond basically is value at the end of the day. It's utility, if you want, in a certain sense, which then the smart business could say, okay, I've created more value in a sense. Let me split that value with you in some way because, you know, there's more to be had in, in the interaction between the customer and the firm. And going back to you, what, what, is, um, what would you say like the transformational points or at least a few of them in your life that have kind of influenced you the most when you backtrack what happens uh, in your professional life or private life and what has led you to where you are now? I used to be a professional basketball player before uh, bef before changing this uh, to uh, I mean I had started a professional basketball career I was uh, I never had the chance to to see where I could have gone but I, I just started it uh -huh. but two years in I, had an, I sort of had a back, back injury and always had a bit of a back problem but I had a back injury two years in and I had to stop and I, you were asking about sort of pivotal moments that was one because I uh, you know I always thought I was going to have this perhaps naively I always thought I was going to have this career in playing sports and then I thought okay. That's not going to happen uh, now. What am I going to do, right? And I kind of turned to business in, in some way, strangely enough. So you were like 20 or something? I was uh, 22, I think, at the time. Mm -hmm. 21, something around, around, around there. So that was a big change. And then um, another one I would say, when I left Australia to go and live Spain for the first time, I did an MBA program. And I wanted to be a consultant and I wanted to be uh, an investment banker also, if I could. And I went to all these presentations of the companies and I, and I say this with all due respect to them, but I just didn't see a fit between uh, them and me. You know, I was trying to sort of be an independent person and, you know, I like variety a lot and changing things up. So I was in a management accounting course in the second year, uh -huh. which one may think is kind of dry, you know, management accounting. And the professor at that, at that school, I was at Yes at the time, also in Barcelona, the professor at the school uh, in that course started talking about how he does research. He really is really into research and he loves teaching the students. Uh, maybe he wanted to get better evaluations. I don't know. He was, you know, I love teaching the students. And then he was talking, talking to me about, to us about how he works with companies. He just won a project and he helps them. He works with the board of directors. And I thought to myself, that's interesting, right? I never thought about this, about a professor, right? Uh, varied work teaching, research, working with companies, okay. you're your own boss. Honestly, if you have to be in the classroom, you can pretty much kind of, you know, do, yeah. you know, what you want. 
And so it kind of clicked to me that maybe I wanted to be in this sort of... Now, admittedly, I didn't have a clue about the PhD and what was required and stuff, but I, but I learned, I suppose, quickly enough. So that was another pivotal moment for me that I wanted to get into academia. I remember as if it was yesterday, exactly that moment in that classroom. And I thank him, uh, by the way, for that sort of illumination. And I guess the third one would have to be when, what I was mentioning to you before, that article that I was reading in my second year, my PhD, when I because I was not in pricing at the time. And that article, when I saw it, sort of, sort of something went up and said, okay, pricing, that's interesting. It's a number, but it's much more than a number, right? And, and then let me look at this. Uh, the companies do this well? Maybe not so well. Can I help? Yeah. I would say, from a professional perspective, I suppose, uh, those, those three moments stand out in my mind. Great. Is there anything that you would say is exists for all companies that we could call like a long-term formula, something that really all of them should have as a common denominator in order to be, you know, doing a good job and uh, serving, you know, this world of ours? Yeah. So there's probably a lot of things I could mention, I suppose. Again, it's kind of off the top of my head and right off the bat in a sense. I'm a big believer in customer orientation, but customer orientation, not in the perspective of the customer is always right. That's not what I mean. Or the customer is king and the customer needs to be always happy. I just mean, if you're going to do well in business, I would put my bet on listening to customers and starting from customers and working our way back in because those markets don't exist unless there are customers. Okay. So I'm a big believer in that. And as I was mentioning before, uh, my specific work lies in the back end of the customer orientation process. You know, once the value is created, what do we do with it, right? How do we claim our fair share? Mm -hmm. But just more generally, I think it's fair to say that in a lot of the exchanges that I've had organizations, we are still too, way too internally driven. Whether it is internal constraints, our internal processes, politics, mm -hmm within the organization. You know, if we're gonna do well for society, and I'm using air quotes here, you know, that's our customers. And it could be a customer target, a segment, it could be a government, it could be whatever the customer is. But really trying to create our company and re-engineer it if it's a new one or re-engineer it from the idea of, okay, what does our customer want and need? How do they go about making their purchases, you know, the customer journey that Rory uh, speaks about these days? And then this thing that I talk about, uh, the idea that I can also know how they consume, okay? Mm -hmm. So getting all this knowledge about customers and sort of structuring a company that way. I think the more we get over ourselves as organizations, the better it probably is. A lot of companies to me are very self-serving in a sense. They're like, we're serving ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know what our customers want because we've been in this business so long. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's like, ah, oh, it's like, who needs to do market research? It's clear that they want this, right? Uh, you'd be amazed how many times once you ask properly, you get surprised by the answer. Let's dream a little bit and say you have like all doors in this world open to you and you have all kinds of resources available to you. Is there anything that you would like immediately rush to change or to innovate or? I would change the reward structure of organizations to be less short-term focused and give them some breathing room to think about the broader consequences of, of what they do. Is there like one you know, piece of advice that you always try to give to leaders if you have the opportunity? Absolutely. Uh, but again, this I go back to my bread and butter, right? Uh, the, the one advice that I always give them, uh, and I will try and stress it again today, is, is the customer orientation is a, is a full, it's a 360 process. Uh, if you don't, Take it 360, 
you're shooting yourself in the foot. I'm very happy that you're creating value for customers. It's exactly what the world needs, which is exactly what you need, but it amounts to nothing if you're not able to capture your fair share back. And it's a very strategic question, and I'm always trying to sort of pull their ears and say, hey, this is really, really important. Don't make it an afterthought, right? Don't do all that stuff and then, oh, yeah, somebody will price it along the line. It's just it's so incredibly important. And if you would, like, go back to, like, 15 years ago or something in your life, uh, is there any particular advice you would have given to yourself then? I would have gone, I said to myself, go into data analytics. It would have been a, a very different, uh, smoother journey. No, I think, no, in seriousness, you mentioned before how I helped uh, fund this uh, Institute for Data-Driven Decisions at the school where I work. Mm. It's amazing how analytics has changed. I mean, this sounds a bit cliche actually now to say, but it's, it's changed the way we organizations behave and do things. Mm. It does the obvious things that we talk about all the time, but also it helps, coming from a business school perspective, it's sort of breaking down the walls between disciplines. There's an underlying current of analytics that goes through all the different things that we teach in the classroom. And so it's kind of all melting into one, which is kind of interesting to see and sometimes scary to see because then you think to yourself, hey, which, which is one is my territory? I mean, back to internal politics. Um, so 15 years ago, uh, I would have probably told myself, hey, uh, get an engineering degree or, or, or something of the sorts. I'm catching up uh, now with all the courses that I'm taking. <laughs> What do you think is the absolutely like one most important thing for companies to focus on right now? You've got a lot of markets that because of the transparency that is brought in by technology, back to the analytics also issue, it's kind of rushing people to this lowest common denominator. There is, while at the same time, technology and what it does is it allows companies to differentiate themselves better because they have more information. At the same time, it makes them more open to scrutiny. And so... This is kind of dichotomy, but what I tend to see the most is the second one. And you have this sort of uh, loss of differentiation over time. Customers are better able to scrutinize their the companies and their practices. And if they're not happy, make those things social. And so you've got a slow process where I think differentiation paradoxically is eroding. I'm a marketing professor, so the, the customer is kind of always in my mind, right? If, uh, if there's... One thing that we have to be careful of is, is, the, is the slow erosion of differentiation. I suppose ultimately down going towards commoditization, right? Companies have to be careful about that and sort of leveraging the data that they do have, which they have it, most of them, to convert it into something that is meaningful. The attention span of customers is shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And so it's just much harder to make yourself stand out and raise your hand. But again, that's the foundation of success, in my view, as a marketing professor, right? The foundation of success is standing out in a meaningful way. Meaning we've got it pretty covered. Uniqueness is eroding at a rate that sort of alarms me. There are a lot of you know, research and surveys done pretty recently that more or less says that two-thirds of people in this, let's call it, westernized world, are using, you could say, in a good sense, companies uh, as leaders because they lack leaders, real leadership from governments and they don't see anything in politics that it's genuine. Right. <laughs> I don't think in any way everything is a little bit of a, of a theater. So they actually turn to companies that have shown that they're very good at, you know, scaling things up, developing, moving things, creating things, and so on. So by choosing or not choosing a company, they have a certain, of course, power over companies. So it's all about 
finding the joint interest between these consumers that want to pick a certain company because they stand for certain issues or stand for certain, uh, have a certain integrity on certain issues that are important for the consumers. And they can drive that behavior because I believe companies are huge engines for change if they, if right. they really you know, mm-hmm. uh, decide that. So we see that more and more and more, uh, which I'm really happy about. It's within our fiber, right? We're always looking for belonging and yeah. for identity, right? Uh, yeah. And so we look yeah. at it from the very early stage with our family, of course. Yeah. And then when we become adults and we sort of branch out uh, from our friends, uh, from the brands that we relate with. I mean, there's a whole literature, as you were probably mentioning, uh, around brand meaning and brand relationships. Mm-hmm. Literally, I mean, some people can say this is sad. Some people can say that this is actually exciting. Mm-hmm. You can say, well, people actually, you know, give personas to brands and identify with their what they do, what they stand for. And by purchasing their products or services, they sort of take the meaning from them in a sense, a little bit of that meaning for them, right? So I can totally see it where in the broader societal context, some of, like we're saying in the political domain, some of that meaning is lost or it will become more cynical. Brands with meaning, right, have really started standing out much more. I was talking about standing out more before, sure. earlier, right? Mm-hmm. One of the way of doing it is exactly like that, is saying, well, I'm gonna stand for something, a cause that is topical and is important to sufficient amount of people, all right? Uh, and if I claim that association, that's a pretty strong bond. And research has shown this much, much stronger than say, hey, I perform better on this dimension sure. by X amount, right? That, that's, that's a very functional differentiation as opposed to differentiation based on meaning. That's a pretty hard thing to, once you start owning an association, then that's it. For better, or, for better, we have, A, you have to deliver on it. And B, for better or for worse, you own that association. And I mean, if you say it's safe and you think Volvo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for better or for worse, mm-hmm. Volvo is safe. It's not going to be something else. Uh, for better because, hey, if you want safety, there you go. Uh, but if you don't want safety, then you don't go. I totally buy that argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marco, the last question is is a, is a big one, but let's you know go to the helicopter perspective. What do you think the world needs most at this time? If you think about it from you know a perspective of Marco Bertini, the person, not just the You're right. Professor. Sure, people have differences of opinions, which is great. Have many more means to express those opinions and mm-hmm. to sort of scale them up, right, and make them heard. Empathy would be great. Mm-hmm. and forums for people to speak without looking at their own interest. I mean, this is, this is very much wishful thinking. Yeah? But, uh, yeah. And again, technology worries me. I like it and it worries me because, and I see it, for example, in, in, in Barcelona, I see this happening. You've got this issue that people can voice their opinion much better, much stronger than before, which is great. But also, technology can be selective, right? So you've got a situation where different people with different beliefs can subscribe uh, socially to people with similar beliefs and, and groups of similar belief. And so it kind of becomes very endogamic. It becomes very sort of insular because you screen out the ones you don't want to hear from and you screen in all the news feeds from the ones you want to hear. And of course, all you hear is the same stuff. And so it becomes uh, kind of perversely becomes very, yeah. it reinforces a self-serving sort of bias. Mm-hmm. So what worries me today is a lot, I mean, amongst other things, but the, at a very broader level is is this sort of, use of technology to sort of reinforce one's beliefs and we just kind of stop playing all dialogue. No, that's really a good observation or, or a wish actually. Yeah. To... Marco, I know that you need to rush also to uh, prepare for your uh, VIP session. And it's actually interesting, it's called VIP, right? Because uh, and I, I always think about VIP, not like important people, but rather people that can create 
change. So you have the fantastic mission to talk to them and influence them, yes, right? Yes, I'm slightly on the nervous side. Uh, uh, you're, you're making me even more nervous now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's it's fun. I can see that you're really uh, doing what you what you love. Yeah. I can see that in your eyes. It's like yes. there is fire and, and passion. Great. It has been really a pleasure to talk to you. How was it, by the way, to be on the podcast? Oh, great. It's like uh, I had a chat with you. I didn't realize the microphone was here. <laughs> it was great. Very pleasant. Thank you. To um, find out more about Marco and his work, you can head to marcobertini.com. Marco would see, of course. And you will also find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, and share this episode with your network and friends for impact. So share it with people you know would benefit from hearing exactly this. Thanks for listening, and until next time, live with purpose, and remember to unplug. So, ciao. Ciao, Marco. Ciao, grazie. <laughs> grazie.